Hey there, this is Angel Donovan with another episode of DSR Become a Better Man. If you're new to the show and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the over 120 interviews that you have before you, then you'll want to check out the top 13 advice audio download we've put together for you for this purpose to give you a foundation, a place to jumpstart all of this process of, of learning. Um, without having to basically make your way through all of the 120 interviews and try and figure out what the foundation pieces are. So we've put the top pieces of advice. We've come across over 15 years of doing this. That's how long we've been doing this. And we've put those all into an audio. We talk about what they do, how they work, why they're important. And to get this, you just go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13. That's datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13 and you'll be able to download the audio from there. And I'd recommend if you're new to the show, you start there and I'll give you a good foundation to get started, to jump off into the massive information we have on this show and navigate it better. Today, we're taking another look at women's sexuality and their behaviors from a scientific research driven perspective. In today's episode, we look at myths and new truths discovered about when and how women become aroused and the interplay between their physiology and their psychology and how this affects their true behavior, their sexual behaviors. So we're going to be looking at topics such as the physiological differences between women, right? All women aren't the same and their hormones are different, their neurotransmitters are different, and uh, this all affects their sexual behavior. So they have different sexual behaviors. Uh, the drugs, the exercise, and the other aspects of lifestyle that can increase or decrease a woman's propensity to become aroused and how they affect the extent of that arousal. So, you know, high arousal equals orgasms, basically, to give you a bit of background to that and why that's important. And the reality of how common sexual abuse is for women in childhood and teenage years, and I was kind of shocked about this, and how that affects their sexuality in adulthood. And what men who sleep with or have relationships with these women should consider and probably not consider. And many, many more topics. This episode is really a broad look at the scientific research about what sexually arouses women. And today's guest is Cindy Meston, PhD. She's a professor at the University of Texas and director of the Sexual Psychophysiology Laboratory there. She has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on women's sexuality, and she's given over 200 professional presentations on human sexuality. She is the co-author with David M. Buss, a very recent previous guest, of a book I recommend also, Why Women Have Sex, Understanding Sexual Motivations from Adventure to revenge and everything in between. So they co-wrote that book together. And she's also the author of Women's Sexual Function and Dysfunction Study, Diagnosis and Treatment. Finally, she's a recipient of two international research awards, the Social Science Research Council, Ford Foundation, uh, the NY Sexually Research Fellowship and the Athena Institute for Women's Wellness, Inc. Research Award. So she's very well qualified to talk about this subject. That's what all of that says. If you'd like to follow along or dive into the transcript of this episode, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast, pick the episode out there, and you'll find that and links to everything we mention, including, of course, Cindy Meston herself. If you love DSR Become a Better Man as much as I do, and you never, ever, ever want to miss an episode, 
you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and I promise we'll notify you every time an episode comes out and send you the show notes with all of the juicy details every time it comes out. That's it for the intro today. So please jump in and enjoy this interview with Cindy Meston, PhD. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Cindy, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So I wanted to first, you've explored a number of interesting topics. So what I'm first interested in is what what has triggered your interest in these topics? Where did you get started with them and and develop your interest in these areas? Yeah, um, I actually became interested in the field as an undergraduate. I was working in a biopsych lab for a professor who studied serotonin and rat sexual behavior. And uh, so started studying rat sexual behavior as an undergrad and wrote a review for an honors paper looking at the role of serotonin and human sexual behavior. And in the process of doing the research, came to realize that there had been very little conducted on human sexuality, period, but particularly women's sexuality since Masters and Johnson in the 1970s. Yeah. And so it, it seemed like, wow, this is a really understudied and important area that seems to be neglected in the field of, of psychology. So, it, so for that reason, I decided this is an area that I want to explore further. Great, great. Because Masters and Johnson, we haven't really spoken a lot about their work, but to give a context, how far did their work go and where did it kind of stop? They were the first to really take sexuality into the laboratory and study it from a psychophysiological perspective, meaning that they actually created equipment to be able to measure physiological changes during sexual arousal and orgasm. So they mapped out the sexual response cycle in terms of desire precedes arousal precedes orgasm resolution and really contributed an enormous amount into towards understanding what happens during the sexual response. But since that very basic mapping of the response, there hadn't been anything that looked at, well, that's what happens, but what leads that? What causes that? And are there significant differences between men and women? And if so, how can we explain that? And of course, the important role that all of this plays in the treatment of sexual problems for women with various concerns. Great, great. Thank you. So there's a lot of interesting areas in your research that I noticed around the hormones topic and also neurotransmitters, which is a similar uh, topic. One of the topics that people listening to this podcast have probably heard come up a a few times before is testosterone and talking about things like uh, how many men these days seem to have lower testosterone and what could be the possible effects. I know that you've looked into testosterone and how that affects women's uh, sexual physiology and behavior. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you've looked into? Yes, definitely. So we've always kind of attributed testosterone 
to male sexuality and, and playing an important role in men's sexuality. And initially it was thought, well, you know, that's kind of the male hormone and estrogen and progesterone are the female hormone. But really over the last decade, there's been an enormous amount of the research and, and clinical reports suggesting that in terms of sex drive, so the desire to have sex, it's actually testosterone that plays a key role. And it plays a facilitatory role as it does in, in men, meaning that a testosterone it facilitates sex drive in women as it does in men. Now, having said that, there are huge differences in the amount of testosterone needed by men and women. Men produce so much more testosterone than women, but we do know that as, as women age, testosterone declines as it does in men. Mm. And when women hit premenopause, menopause, and beyond, there's a significant reduction in testosterone that researchers now have reason to believe that that could be linked for some women to a decrease in sex drive that occurs as they, as they age. Now, the one thing that that listeners really need to realize is that it's not simply the case that more is better. It's not the case that if you take testosterone or testosterone supplements, uh, that it's necessarily going to increase sex drive because it only does so for women that are truly below normal levels of testosterone. And, and this is not widely recognized out there. And there's a lot of physicians, a lot of um, naturopathic doctors who prescribe testosterone off-label. It's not approved in North America to be administered by a physician. Like there are no pills or drugs that you can order, but it's off-label in the sense that there are many pharmacies who are compounding testosterone creams. And so the, the danger is taking too much really can be detrimental to to a woman. Well, for a man as well, but for women, it causes acne, it causes facial hair growth, it causes hair loss, and it could uh, lead to some other cardiovascular serious risk factors if they take too much. So the important thing to keep in mind is testosterone plays a role, but it's, it's not simply the case that if you have low drive, take testosterone. Because women have low sex drive for a lot of a variety of different reasons, and only some women can you attribute that to to a lack of testosterone. And if it's not a lack of testosterone, then you have to really be careful with taking too much. Yeah, it's getting that ideal U curve, the spot in the U curve, uh, trying to get it right in the middle in the reference range. Have you heard of? I don't know if you've heard of this term. I've heard of it before. A scream cream? No, no. Okay, I didn't think so. But, you know, it's something that's come up a little bit recently. So I thought I'd just bring it up. With the testosterone cream, some people have been using it to say that it gives women greater orgasms. So giving the girl a little bit of the um, testosterone cream prior to sex or something like that. Do you think there's any evidence in it? Does it sound like some, something appropriate or inappropriate? Well, here is the thing. I mean, I doubt that putting on a topical cream would have that immediate an effect uh -huh. from a physiological standpoint. However, we do know that there is an enormous placebo effect on uh, sexuality in women. 
I mean, you know, placebo effect is out there for all drugs and for men and women, but I do not believe that there has ever been a higher reported placebo rate than there is for drug treatment for women. In the initial Viagra studies, you know, in 1998, Viagra was approved, as you probably know, by the FDA for the treatment of erectile dysfunction in in males. And an enormously effective drug. That drug absolutely works and has revolutionized sex therapy for men. So all the pharmaceutical companies were trying to develop the first pink Viagra for women, right? And uh, what did we find? I was involved in some of the initial drug trials, and we found that, yeah, Viagra works for women, but the placebo effect was so enormous. Up to 40% of women taking the placebo cream showed a significant enhancement in their sexual functioning. So the takeaway is all you have to do is give your girlfriend some placebo cream and tell her it's scream cream. (laughs) Well, for some women, yes, that will have an, an effect because they will, if they really believe it and they believe it's going to work, then, you know, they have this attribution that, Wow, this is going to work. And and when you put anything on your your genitals or wherever you're rubbing this cream, and if you think it's going to work, then you're attending to sexual sensations more readily. That's that's one explanation. If you think you've been given something that's going to increase your genital response, well, guess what? You pay attention to your genitals more. You notice things more, and you notice. The sensations and that in and of itself facilitates further arousal and drive. It's an interesting concept because the placebo is not nothing. Taking a placebo that you really believe works leads you to act differently and experience different things during sexual situations. Yeah, absolutely. Have you looked at how different women have different levels of testosterone and oxytocin and and things like this? And and does it change their behavior or do they exhibit different behaviors based on the levels of these hormones? Oh, you bring up a really, really good point. So there has not been a, a lot of research done on that. We have very poor norms for understanding hormone levels in women by age and by menopausal status, and and we just don't know what are the averages for all these different women. Now, having said that, there have been studies where they've taken women who have low drive, problems with with, uh, feeling like they have a lack of interest in drive, versus women who have a normal sex drive. And strangely, there are not significant differences in testosterone levels. It would be actually great if there were, because then we could say, aha, wonderful, women with low drive, just take a little testosterone, bring you up to a normal level, and you'll be fine. But that's not the case. And so that's where it gets really complicated. And the reason that there are probably no differences between women with and without low drive is that so many women with low drive have perfectly normal testosterone levels, but have other reasons for having a lack of desire. And do we have ideas on what those other reasons may be? <laughs> yeah, there's about a million relational reasons. Okay. <laughs> right, right. That could be you know, uh, women are much more contextual in their whole sexual experience than are men. 
meaning that men are very good at attending to genital cues and genital sensations. I mean, when a man becomes aroused, he has an erection, it's a very visible response. He's used to attending to his penis from the time he's a a child because you use your penis to urinate. They touch their, men touch their genitals, they're away. Like they have this for, as strange as it may sound, they have a close relationship with their genitals. And certainly an erection is very visible, noticeable. When a man has an erection, it rubs against his clothes. He, He right away knows he's aroused and attends to those sensations. Women, on the other hand, you know, the whole sexual arousal response is more subtle. It doesn't grab their attention as much. And, you know, many women, I mean, this is changing among younger women, but many women are are raised or socialized to kind of not pay attention to their genitals. And so just from a developmental perspective, even, women aren't used to attending to genital cues, and they're subtler. And so... What happens is, added to that, women are socialized to pay attention to their the, their surroundings, to, to people, to their environment. And so it, as adults, if you bring that into a sexual situation, what it means is women kind of have to have everything right to be able to focus on sex most of the time, unless there's a real, you know, they're in the heat of passion and that are able to tune out extraneous cues, but things like, you know, if they've had a bad day, if the, if the children haven't been fed, if the dog's barking, if the house is a mess, all of those sort of things distract them from being able to better focus on sexually arousing cues. And then relationally, it's certainly not the case for all women. And the book that I wrote with my uh, co-author, Dr. David Buss, shows that women have sex for all sorts of reasons, not just love and emotional attachment. But that said, for a lot of women, sex can't be taken in isolation. They need to feel good about their partner, good about their relationship. They need to feel connected and emotionally bonded in order to really want to have sex and to experience sex. Whereas men are better able to enjoy the sexual experience in the absence of some of those factors. Yeah. Thank you for that. A great resume uh, there. Another thing I picked out from some of your work is that uh, you've looked at nicotine and possibly you have some ideas about other popular drugs and how they affect uh, sexual arousal. I was quite surprised to see nicotine in there. Well, we were surprised as well to see that it had such a dramatic effect um, and, and at an you know acute level. I mean, certainly we've heard for a long time that smoking is bad for your, for all sorts of health reasons and for the erectile response in men. But we really assume that that's a long-term chronic effect. So we brought it into the laboratory and. We, we did two studies, one in men, one in women, and these were young, healthy men and women with no sexual problems who were non-smokers. And we just simply wanted to look at the effects of nicotine, a single um, dose of nicotine on the actual physiological sexual response. So in men, we looked at the erectile response. In women, we looked at blood flow into the vagina. And we found that and we used nicotine gum and we used a placebo gum that we we matched in the flavor and smell and texture and what have you as best we could. And we found that 
quite surprisingly, nicotine had a deleterious effect on the sexual response in men and women. So, so when we showed them a sexual film, this is how we measure sexual arousal in the laboratory. We we show the people a the the participants a non-sexual film to get a baseline of just the blood in the genitals, and then we show them the sexual film, and we look at change in blood flow. And when when someone's aroused, within a few seconds of presentation of the erotic film, they sh- there's a dramatic increase in blood flow to the genitals. And so we found when they had received nicotine prior to viewing these films, there was a, a much smaller blood flow response to the erotic films when they've taken the nicotine. So it really is having an effect on not allowing blood to go into the genitals. And if that's done time after time after time, many times a day for many years, what happens is it actually begins to break down the musculature in the penile, uh, in the penis called erectile tissue, which is a network of little blood vessels surrounded by a muscular network that opens and closes to allow blood to go in and out of the genitals. And it, it, it breaks down the ability of the muscles to do that. And that's what's in uh, long-term chronic smokers, what happens. So does that contribute to erectile dysfunction? Oh, absolutely. It's a huge cause of erectile dysfunction, yeah. And it, it, if you look at long-term smokers versus non-smokers, there's a much higher incidence of erectile failure. Yeah. What are the rates of erectile dysfunction? Do, do you know? Have you looked at it? Because, you know, we're always talking, like, it seems that the media and everything else around us is telling that erectile dysfunction is a lot more present today. Yeah. I, I mean, a real rough average is about a quarter of men. I mean, it certainly increases with age. Yeah. But probably about 25% of men, and I'm not talking incidental erectile failure. I, I mean, one thing that I would love to get out, out also to your listeners is that occasional erectile problems is the norm, not the exception. Many men have uh, experiences where they will experience erectile failure. And we know from the literature that for most men, they recognize that. They say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm tired or I'm stressed out about something or I'm particularly, I was particularly nervous about this sexual interaction. Sometimes if um, uh, a man has a new partner and they're very excited about their partner, they're so worried about being a good lover that it has the, the opposite effect of causing erectile problems because they're so worried that they're not focusing on the sexual cues, right? And so it really is the case that that is normal. Uh, Don't worry about it. And so by talking about erectile dysfunction, we're talking longer-term chronic, over time, really a a repeated inability to to attain and maintain an erection. And, And the best way to know if you really have a problem versus is this just that I'm anxious during sex is if a man's able to attain an erection during masturbation, then he doesn't have a physiological problem. It's as simple as that. Right, it's a psychological. Exactly. Uh, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thanks for straightening that out because I know it's something that uh, a lot of guys are concerned about. Talking about so we've been talking about a very a variety of physiological uh, factors. Uh, where it comes to women, how do you think about how these the physiological uh, sexual arousal aspects relate to psychology for them? 
how they think, how they behave, and and so on. Yeah, well, you ask um, the key question that I've been trying to understand for 25 years, actually. And um, it's really complicated because what we find, as I sort of alluded to earlier, for men, there's a much closer connection between the erectile response and how aroused they say they are or they, they experience psychologically. Whereas women, we it's not as close a connection. You don't have, even in the laboratory, when we measure how psychologically aroused they are and what their body's doing, it's not as close a connection. And so this isn't to say that genital cues are not important, but for women, some women aren't attending to them. Some women aren't um, maybe able to detect them easily enough, or for some women, they aren't experiencing those genital cues as sexually arousing. Maybe other cues are more important to them. It's not to say that the physiology isn't important because it is, and and many women say, you know, I used to experience these genital sensations, now I don't. It's making me feel less sexually satisfied. But for other women, it's it's not as close a relationship, if that makes sense. Okay, so it sounds like it varies. How do you look at this whole space of, of women's sexual behavior? Do you have a kind of working model in your head or ways you think about it more broadly? Well, I think that for women, you have to have the, the right, a certain level of phys- physiology working properly. You need to have hormones intact, uh, you need to have, we know that some of the neurotransmitters like dopamine, um, norepinephrine, we know, we know, we don't know a lot about oxytocin humans yet, but we believe that that's linked, may play a bonding role in sexual attachment in humans to some degree, like it does in animals. And so, the underlying physiology needs to be functioning, but there needs to be more than that. And if I had to say it, I, I would say it's probably even more so than for women than men is the, the role of just the contextual factors, the relational factors, the many reasons that they want to have sex or they feel sexually satisfied, it probably plays a slightly more important role for women than it does men. And it isn't to say that men are just all about becoming sexually aroused and having an orgasm. That's, that's not true. And some of my research with Dr. Buss has, has, show, has shown that. But I do think that women are more easily distracted from their sexual response and that so many more things in their relationship play a key role in allowing them to become sexually aroused. Thank you. Thank you. It's always interesting. Someone with 25 years of work to understand like how they think of it today. It's quite. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we still don't have all the answers, but we're, <laughs> we're learning. Yeah. It's, it's a work in progress. Yeah. I was going to ask this to you later, but seeing as we're just talking about this, have you got any big things you'd like to get answered in the next five, 10 years? Uh, questions that you think could get answered about women's sexuality? Well, um, I guess two different lines of research. One is really understanding more about the physiology of sexual arousal. This is something that I've been very interested in for a long time. In fact, my dissertation research focused on this. And that is, the uh, for a very long time, it was believed that in women, 
sexual arousal, you want to get them into a, a, a kind of non-anxious state. You, our nervous system has two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is what ha- prepares you for what you've probably heard of the fight or flight response. So your heart's racing, all these changes that get you ready to run, basically. And then the parasympathetic is a, kind of an opposing branch of the nervous system that kind of calms you down, brings you back to resting equilibrium. And it was uh, believed for forever that uh, the thing to do for women, if you if you want to facilitate sexual arousal, is get them into a calm state, get them to relax, uh, take a bubble bath, listen listen to some calming music, and and uh, that this would help facilitate arousal. And with the caveat that 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 indeed would be helpful for women who are particularly anxious about sex. But for women who have a, a normal level of nervous system arousal and as they approach sexual situations have a normal level, the actual opposite I have shown to be true, and which is that you actually want to get them aroused from a nervous system perspective. It would be much better to go for, I've shown that exercise and ephedrine, and all, all these things facilitate arousal. In women, so to do an activity that is more activating as opposed to calming before sex, it seems to jumpstart sexual arousal in women. Right. So it seems to be the opposite of what we thought. Apart from, if someone is anxious, it doesn't it tend to interrupt the the process. Yeah. That's, so that's what I believe. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like in absence of anxiety, for whatever reason, could be work stress or could be stress about the relationship and and so on, then being more excited in terms of like having the nervous system more excited is going to be beneficial to sexual arousal. Yeah. Is, is that correct? Yeah, we I, have it. Yeah. So yeah, I noticed that you, you'd also explored some of these methods. You've explored exercise. Ephedrine, you said, is that right? It is. Ephedrine is, is what they put in a lot of diet me- um, medications. I would not suggest taking that at all. Kind of, It's dangerous, actually. I, I did it just to really get at the norepinephrine response. But yeah, exercise, <laughs> you know, go run around the block or even better get your partner to chase you around the block, <laughs> something like that. Right. Just anecdotally, I, I would say the exercise uh, thing definitely works. Um, I used to go training with my girlfriend and there seemed to be a correlation about the post-activity there. Another thing I saw was ginkgo biloba you were looking into? Mm-hmm. Yes. So ephedrine is like something that you probably don't want everyone to start taking. As you said, why did you look at ginkgo biloba? Well, ginkgo biloba has been shown to increase blood flow all over the body. And it's a safe herbal extract. And so I wanted to see whether it kind of had a similar effect to Viagra, which is increasing blood into the genitals particularly among women who are on antidepressants. And what we know, uh, you know, there are a lot of, well, men and women, a lot of people are on antidepressants these days, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, like Prozac and Wellbutrin, all all these drugs, a lot of people are taking them. And unfortunately, they have uh, negative side effects on sexual function for a lot of people, which is one of the main reasons that a lot of people stop taking them, which is too bad because they're very beneficial for, for depression. But anyways, and one of the, the problems with the side effects is you can't really figure out how 
to resolve them as a physician. They don't seem to respond well to traditional therapy. And so I wanted to see whether something like ginkgo biloba that increases blood into the genitals uh, could counteract those effects. We found modest effects, nothing that I would say, oh, this is so fabulous, run out and buy it right right away. <laughs> right, right. More recently, yeah. uh, just a few years ago, we looked at an exercise program for women who were on antidepressants and who were suffering from sexual side effects. And found that the women who, we had several different conditions. One is they exercise within a half hour before having sex. And in a different condition, they just exercise, but at a time period unrelated to sexual activity. So you're kind of looking at the chronic beneficial effects of exercise, which we know are huge versus the immediate effects of exercise on the sexual response and found that there, there, it was beneficial in both conditions, but really the exercise within 30 minutes of having sex actually helped these women who were on antidepressants and having problems becoming sexually aroused and having an orgasm that it actually counteracted some of those effects. So I'm, I was really delighted with that finding because this is a large group of women who, you know, were, are perfectly sexually functional, then they go on antidepressants and it impairs the sexual response. And so this is something that would be great to get, get the word out. It doesn't cost anything. It, it's good for your sex life and it's good for all sorts of other things as well. Yeah, as you were as you were talking about that, I mean, I've been into exercise for a very long time, and I've tried a lot of different methodologies. I've looked at things like cardio in my early years. I did a lot of jogging. Then I went into resistance training, but kind of high volume resistance training. So I'd be in the gym most days, mm-hmm. um, pushing some weights. Then I then I did some things like uh, high intensity training. So that's more like once a week weights in a, in a kind of different specific protocol. And of course, you have the high intensity uh, training protocols, interval training, rather, where people are like doing sprints, stop, sprint stops. And, and you have the CrossFit, you, know, you have all of these different uh, types, which people are into. I wonder if they'd have different patterns of impact on, on arousal. What kind of exercise specifically did you look at? Or do you just kind of put it all into one box? No, I looked at uh, cycling on a stationary cycle and running on a treadmill. Uh, so you're right, you know, there's so many different theories of exercise, and I, I don't by any means pretend that I'm an exercise physiology expert. I'm not. My understanding is that the type of exercise program you choose depends to some degree on, on your desired outcome, right? If you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to, to build flexibility or you're trying to gain muscle mass, whatever, And I was specifically looking for ways to increase sympathetic nervous system activity. And so relying on the exercise physiology literature, I learned that 20 minutes of intense cardiovascular exercise at somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of your maximum volume of oxygen uptake. So it's a pretty good workout, Mm. but, but as little as 20 minutes has a, a really beneficial effect. Yeah. So that's not really like the kind of jogging. That's more intense than that. That's probably more similar to the HIIT, except there's no intervals yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's also interesting because I'm sure a lot of people are doing different things at home. 
Oh, well, well, I was just going to add one kind of interesting tidbit about the exercise studies, and that is, and I've replicated this finding many, many times right now, so I'm very confident that it's a real finding, is that what's interesting, when you do all that, that exercise, or that 20 minutes of intense exercise, and then are put into a sexual situation, we've found that when the women are viewing a non-sexual film, it, their blood flow to the genitals doesn't change with exercise. So it's only when they're viewing a sexual film, so they're thinking sexual thoughts. So what's interesting about that is it's not simply that exercise is just putting blood in your genitals. That's not the case. It's actually preparing the body for sexual arousal so that when they are put in a sexual situation, they respond more intensely and also more quickly. Right. Is it because it's kind of like your body's more aroused overall? That's what you're saying with the sympathetic system, but it's not. Well, it's like prepared to become. It's it's aroused and it's prepared to become sexually aroused. So it's like a more efficient system. So it sounds like exercise is the is one of the best findings for improving uh, someone a couple's sex life. You know, go to start going to the gym together or something like that. Absolutely, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, as I said, I you know I've, it's been something that I just noticed over time, which is is good. One of the more how would you say uh, challenging topics you've looked at is child or sexual abuse and women's sexual behavior in adulthood. I just know that there's a lot of popular myths or popular ideas out there about how sexual abuse translates into you know adulthood and so on. So you know I wanted to look into this topic with you. What is the background of sexual abuse? How common is it? Sadly, it's very common. About a third of North American women experience, have experienced in their lifetime some type of sexual abuse. Now, the prevalence rates change dramatically depending on the way you're defining sexual abuse, of course. In the literature, it's even confusing because some people define it as any sort of, let's just take childhood sexual abuse. Some people define it as any sort of unwanted sexual contact. So this could be someone exposing themselves, their genitals to a child, but not actually ever touching the child to the very far end of the continuum, which would be a penetration of the child. So to try to get exact numbers, it's hard because it's how someone defines it. And also the age, some researchers say, well, it's prepubertal, some say 12 years, some say 15 years. So it's hard to get put exact numbers on it, but bottom line is there are it's a high rate, um, whichever way you want to look at it, and it has deleterious effects on sexuality in adulthood for not everybody, but for a large proportion of women who have had these experiences. Right. So I think one of the popularized ideas about sexual abuse victims is that they tend to become more sexualized and kinky in adulthood as a result. Are these myths or does your research support that? Well, to some extent, research does support that. So here's what we know with women who have been sexually abused, particularly in childhood. Now, sorry to be so vague, but there's so many factors that will determine if they experience Um, negative effects on sexuality. It depends on how early the experience, if it was repeated, if it involved penetration, if it was a family member. All of these things do play a role in the degree to which it impacts one's sexuality. But we know that any unwanted sexual 
activity, especially in children and even in adolescents or adults, if it was their very first sexual experience. So if they don't have kind of a repertoire of normal sexual experiences that come first, then it has a negative impact. And what we and by negative we say, well, different from normal. And we find that some women do tend to engage in a lot of what's referred to as unrestricted sexual behavior. So so they're very sexualized. They have a lot of sexual partners. They have a lot of uncommitted sex. And then on on the other side, they kind of fall into these two camps are the women who really have a lack of desire for sex. So where is that coming from? Well, the un, the unrestricted or the, as some people have labeled, over-sexualized behavior may be coming from, doesn't mean uh, attachment, doesn't mean commitment, doesn't mean love, sex, so you do it because you have no choice, You your boundaries have been violated many times, and so a sexual boundary it doesn't really mean that much like it does to someone who's not experienced those things. It, it's just crossing a, a personal boundary that isn't that different from other personal boundaries being crossed. And so it's not really sex in some ways, just a, an act. It doesn't have the same meaning to some of those women. And then for others, they've it's led to a lack of desire for sex because Early on, their experiences, their first experiences, sex wasn't enjoyable. I mean, if it happened in childhood, they they didn't even label it as sex. This is this is just painful. It's scary. It hurts. And especially if it's someone that they knew and trusted, then sex is the whole issue of um, lack of trust. And this is someone that I trusted and who I thought loved me, and now they're hurting me. And so if that becomes the sexual experience, you can imagine the kind of thoughts that are created and formed. And then you all of a sudden you jump into adulthood and you're supposed to, you know, you love this person, you care for them greatly. And then you're supposed to make sex feel like it's love and attachment and all the good things when that's not what you've learned. So it's hard to do that kind of mental shift for some women. It's complicated, but it's... It's a complicated matter. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's definitely a complicated matter. Are there healthy and unhealthy ways that they're dealing with it? I mean, when you, when you look at the unrestricted sex habits, sometimes is that a healthy outlet for them in terms of... I don't know if you've crossed over and looked at the relationship impacts and, and stuff like that. Well, I think it's so individual. You know, it, it just all depends on the individual woman. It, it, bottom line, if it's pleasurable for her, if she's doing it willingly and it is pleasurable, then it's, one could argue, well, then it's not harmful if she's doing it because she's not getting sexual pleasure, but she's get, getting something else out of it. She's getting money or gifts or favors or has taught, been has kind of learned early on that she needs to do that for reasons that have nothing to do with sexual pleasure, then it may be not the best thing for her. Has your research uncovered any potential healthy or beneficial approaches men could take towards women that say a guy discovers that his new girlfriend has suffered sexual abuse in the past? So is there anything he could do which would potentially be a, you know, a beneficial approach either towards sex or towards relationship? 
that's a very good question and a hard question to answer. I guess I would say a, a couple of things, more just to, to know that, number one, not all women who have had these experiences doesn't impact their sexuality. So don't make the broad assumption that, oh, wow, you know, you, you've had this abuse history, you must have, you must be kind of messed up sexually and make these false attributions, which could be simply for, for many other reasons. I, um, if the woman has disclosed this, it would be probably beneficial and meaningful to the woman if the male asked, asked her, uh, do you think that this has affected your sexuality or your enjoyment of sex? She may not know, but I think even asking that it, it opens the communication for let's figure out ways that sex can be enjoyable to you. It may be that certain positions, activities sexually are what really are the negative triggers and that you could find a sexual repertoire devoid of those specifics that, you know, lead to better outcomes. So kind of offering to open up communication about it and to try to find ways of having a, a good sex life that don't involve those negative triggers that she may be experiencing is one thing. Um, I would like to say when you started to ask this question, I thought you were going to ask, um, are there any treatments that I found can work for women with these sexual problems? Because I'm very excited <laughs> to about this. This is uh, possibly the finding that I'm most happy about in my uh, whole career, and that is I was funded to do a six-year long study of women who had a severe history of childhood sexual abuse and were experiencing sexual problems in adulthood. And uh, we had a large group of women. It's a very hard population to study because some of these women, and again, I'm certainly not generalizing, but some of these women, there's um, a portion of these women who just don't function that well. They have, There's a higher proportion who don't have jobs, who are below the national income level, who, who don't fare well. And so we really tried to get the worst affected population of women into the laboratory and to try to help them. So it was a hard study to run because just to keep them in a study for six months and longer is is difficult for them. Okay, so that said, we have this group of women. We did a very, very simple treatment, and this is we got them to write. It was an expressive writing treatment. We know from the literature that writing about your feelings on a certain topic has beneficial effects for people who suffer from depression and anxiety. That's been shown before. It had not been applied to the women with sexual abuse. So we had these women come in and they were assigned to write. Uh, they came into our laboratory and they, it's my lab, and they wrote for 30 minutes several times a week for several weeks, like five weeks. And we had three groups of women. One group was assigned to simply write about their day. So they just came in a couple times a week and they wrote about their day. And that was the control group. Then we had another group of women come in and they wrote about their abuse experiences. So they actually wrote about the trauma. Then we had a third group of women who came in and 
I got them to write about how they viewed themselves as a sexual person, how they think that they became that person and how it affects them in their adulthood, in their current life, and their past sexually. So they wrote for several periods of time. And what we did is we measured their sexual functioning. We also measured things like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, all those things that we know occur at a very high prevalence rate among women with a history of childhood sexual abuse. We measured them at the beginning of the study, at the end of the study, so after a month, and then we also followed them afterwards for three months and six months after they'd been through this very simple treatment. And honestly, I never expected in my wildest imagination that we would have such significant findings. I was hoping for a small and promising effect, and we got hugely significant findings where the women who wrote about their trauma and who wrote about their uh, sexuality, how they viewed themselves as a sexual person, at the end of treatment, they had lower levels of depression, fewer post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, so the nightmares, the reoccurring thoughts, the flashbacks, things like that, significantly decreased compared to the women who just came in and wrote about their day. And that was maintained at six months. That's the longest follow-up for any sort of treatment among this group of women. So that in and of itself was super exciting. But what also made me just so pleased to see is the women who wrote about how they view themselves as sexual beings, they showed significant improvement in sexual functioning, measured with interviews, measured with really well-constructed, validated questionnaires. Over half of the women no longer met criteria for sexual dysfunction after being in this very simple treatment. It's just really mind-blowing that it was so effective. Yeah, yeah, it is. I guess, look, as well, I was just thinking of what people might have been doing before they found out about this, if they'd been keeping diaries or journals, what, that could have been serving the same purpose. Mm -hmm. So some of the women out there might have self-medicated <laughs> or self-treated. I know that yeah, keeping journals yeah, and diaries yeah, are yeah. relatively popular. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know what the percentage of the population it is. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's very beneficial, very therapeutic. I think that there was something about having them really think about who they are as a sexual person, mm. kind of put it all together for them. Like a lot of times when someone has experienced a trauma, be it sexual or anything, you know, they think about the event and it's like this reverberating circuit. They have the thought and then they go and then they stop it and then they have it again and they stop it. And there's, it never really goes anywhere. There's no closure. And when you're forced to write it down, then you put it into a narrative. So there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And I think something about that helps the brain almost to stop that reverberating circuit. You, you then have a beginning, a middle and an end is one possibility. And then also just kind of putting out, really thinking about how it's affected me sexually is therapeutic. I don't know all the mechanisms for it, but it seems to change the individual's self-schema, how they view themselves as a sexual person changes with this writing intervention. And what's so beautiful about it, it doesn't cost anything. And for some women, they don't want to seek therapy. They can't afford it for some of them, but even those who can don't always want to seek therapy because it's too painful or they feel shame about it. They don't want to 
they don't want to relive it with a professional. So this is a great option. Yeah, it is. It's, as you say, it's like very accessible um, to everyone. So thanks, thanks for bringing that up. It's great. Uh, rounding off, because I know we're running out of time here, but I do want to know what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Well, I have a, a website, which is mestonlab.com. And on uh, the website, I have all of my publications and some information about some broad topics of sexuality and many links to other professional organizations that people can learn more specifics about certain aspects of sexuality. I'm not able to do individual therapy over over the internet, both for ethical reasons and just yeah. it's not a good way to get therapy. But um, <laughs> there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of good information. Great, thank you. And who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality like knowledge research in this area of dating, sex, or relationships? Boy, well, for women's sexuality, there are a number of good researchers in our field. The Kinsey Institute is doing some good research on women's sexuality. For men with erectile problems, possibly the world's leading expert is a Dr. Erwin Goldstein, who's at San Diego University. He has a sexual medicine clinic there. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Buss, has written a number of very interesting books on the evolutionary aspect of sexuality, which I think are very interesting and informative. And uh, more and more sexual medicine is becoming a well-known field and and more good researchers are entering the field all the time. So I I think there's good promise for learning a lot more in the next five years or so. Thank you very much for those recommendations. Uh, Very interesting. What are your top three recommendations to guys who are, they want to improve their dating life as fast as possible? Have you got top three recommendations? It might be a bit uh, tricky given your focus of research, but if you have something that would be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something that uh, David Buss could answer better than (laughs) me. I, I, I don't study dating relationships. Per se. So how about I give, give one good piece of advice? Keep in mind that women are very different in their sexual needs, their sexual desires, their sexual expressions, what turns them on. And I think a lot of men make the mistake of kind of entering into a new relationship with, with some background of, oh, you know, hey, I... I was really good, like my past lovers thought I was really good. They really liked this and, you know, that just really turned them on. And so they they apply the very same template to, to the next woman and the next woman and the next woman. And it may not always work. And keep in mind that women are different. Uh, to not expect just because it works with one woman that it's necessarily going to work with the next and to not be offended if it doesn't work. It, keep it open to communication. You, you, to be a good lover, you have to be willing uh, to listen, to ask, and to learn something new and not just to go on your past experiences. I think that's a great takeaway, not to use templates or cookie-cutter approach to sexual experience. Exactly. Women are complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been said before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not a novel statement. <laughs> Well, Cindy, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really enjoyed um, a look into your research and what you've been up to and all your discoveries. Well, well thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been very enjoyable chatting with you.